Yo, this is Pastor Tito here, and this is the Revolutionary Podcast. Every episode of the Revolutionary Podcast is geared and focused on looking at the Word of God and helping us to learn how to better revolve our lives around the truth and around Christ Himself. And today's going to be no different as I want to introduce to you Dr. Hemby from Southeastern University, who's going to help us to learn how to talk to ourselves during tough times in a way to help us to revolve our life around Christ. I just got to tell you, and I'm going to preach here in just a moment, but I was sitting there thinking, I hadn't thought about this till I got in the building, but it's about a story I heard one time, obviously a fictional one, but about a couple of guys named Tom and Joe. Tom was a white guy, and Joe was a black guy. I don't know if this is appropriate to say in a time like ours, but hey, we'll just get over it. But they grew up friends. I grew up in the country of North Carolina, and some of my best friends were African-American guys, and But Tom and Joe grew up together from the time that they were just small. They went through grade school, middle school, and high school together. And when they were adults, they lived pretty close together. They were just inseparable, and their families loved each other. But they had a problem. They always had an argument. They were both Christians, but Tom says, when we get to heaven, you're going to find out Jesus is white. Joe said, no, I love you, but when we get to heaven, you're going to find out Jesus is black. So they had this ongoing interaction their entire lives, and as fate would have it, they're out fishing one day, and a storm came up, and the boat uh, capsized, and both of them drowned, and they all ended up at the pearly gates together. And so they're standing at the pearly gates, and an angel welcomes them in and says, you guys, welcome to heaven. Jesus will be out here to greet you personally here in just a few minutes. Just make yourself at home. And they're standing there anticipating seeing Jesus face to face for the first time. And all of a sudden, there's this bright ball of light that appears. And they're anticipating seeing Jesus. And Joe looks at Tom and says, you're going to see he's black. Tom looks at Joe and says, you're going to see he's white. And when Jesus pops out, he sticks out his hand and he says, buenos dias. Have you ever been wrong? There we go. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. I thought you'd like it. Praise God. So good. So good to be with you. You ready to get into the word this morning? Praise God. Let's go to the book of Psalm. Psalm 46. Psalm 46. I want to talk to you about uh, something and just uh, matter of fact, I hope you've got something to write it down on. I think that she was passing out some stuff to take notes on a moment ago. Because I'm not only going to give you something, but I'm also going to give you an assignment. I guess you expected that from a professor, right? I'm going to give you an assignment. And the assignment is going to require you knowing these three main points that I'm going to give you this morning. Three main points. And basically, you know, I could entitle this a whole lot of different things. And I I didn't send... uh, pastor anything to put up here on the slides but really what I want to give you this morning is what to say when you talk to yourself 
what to say when you talk to yourself. And I'm going to give you an assignment about how to talk to yourself over the next week. And I want you to say three things to yourself every morning before you launch out into whatever it is you launch out into. So what to say when you talk to yourself. It's been proven many times, even in the arena of psychology, that self-talk is a very important aspect of our lives. So now that we know each other, how many of you would admit you talk to yourself from time to time? Okay, how many of you would admit that sometimes you actually answer yourself? Okay, fewer people are raising up your hand, but I know you do. But here's the thing. Self-talk is important, and it's actually in the Bible. It's not just something that psychologists have have uh, researched and proven is a good thing, but it's actually in the Bible. For instance, David will say in the Psalms, we won't go there today, and it's not in this particular Psalm, but David will say, why are you downcast, O my soul? Who's he talking to? Himself. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Put your hope in God. And so he's talking to himself. The problem with self-talk, though, is you've got to talk right. Because sometimes self-talk can be very destructive if we're not talking to ourselves correctly. So I want out of this psalm, I want to give you three things this week that I want you to memorize, and they'll be easy to memorize, that I want you to say when you get up in the morning to talk to yourself. And it has to do a lot with some of the crazy stuff that's going on around us and the things that we're experiencing. So let's stand, if you will, please, while we read the word together. I hope you have your Bibles with you, whether it's electronic or paper. I have both, but I brought. I just like to hear the pages turn sometimes. Psalm 46, I'm going to read the entire psalm, and then we're going to go through it and give you these three self-talk phrases. Verse 1, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, even though the earth be removed and though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea. Though its waters roar and be troubled and though the mountains shake with its swelling. Selah. Now, I have to ask you this morning to participate. This psalm is divided into three sections and every section ends with this term, Selah. Most uh, commentators say, we're not exactly sure what it means, but most commentators think that, that that was like a term indicating a musical interlude. You know how people will play a song and then they'll give time for music to play? That probably indicates a musical interlude. So every time I read the word sailor, this is what it makes me feel like, hmm. Because that's what a musical interlude does. It's like pause Think about what you've just said and let it sink in. So every time we get to Selah, I want you to do this. You ready? Hmm. You did pretty good. Now, everybody, you ready? Selah. Hmm. That's exactly what it means. So that stop and let it sink in. All right. Verse 4. There is a river whose stream shall make glad the city of God, the holy place of the tabernacle of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God shall help her just at the break of dawn. The nations raged, the kingdoms were moved. He uttered his voice and the earth melted. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Selah. Mm. Oh, you are awesome. Fantastic. Verse 8. Come behold the works of the Lord, who has made desolations in the earth. 
He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariot in the fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Selah. Hmm. Fantastic. You can be seated this morning. Three declarations for difficult days that we need to think about when we are talking to ourselves. What to say when you talk to yourself. Let me read verse 1 through 3 to you again. This is our first declaration. If you're writing those down, this is declaration number 1. I will not fear, for I have a refuge. That's declaration number 1. I will not fear... For I have a refuge. Notice, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, notice, we will not, what? Fear. I will not fear, for I have a refuge. Try it with me right now. You ready? I will not fear, for I have a refuge. That's declaration number one. And then he says, even though the earth be removed and though the mountains be carried in the midst of the sea, though its waters roar and be troubled, and though the mountains shake with its swelling, Selah. Hmm, good. I will not fear, for I have a refuge. Notice in verse 1 that he puts all of that in the present tense. He said, God is. Not God was or God will be, but God is our refuge and strength. Notice, a very present help in time of trouble. The fact that we have a refuge, a strength, and that God is a present help should, according to the scripture, alleviate being frightened. God's will is not for us, regardless of what's going on around us or what's going on in us. God's will is never for us to live life dictated by fear. There is a healthy fear, the fear of God. But this is not the kind of fear being talked about here. This is a word that actually means to be frightened, to be agitated by fright. And the psalmist says, I do not have to live agitated by fear or even manipulated by fear because I have a refuge regardless of what's going on around me. Notice what he says here in these verses. He's not talking about little stuff. He says this fear is constant even though things like the earth being removed. This is earth shaking stuff. And even though the mountains be carried into the sea, what is more solid than a mountain? But what going around, what's going on around us, even though the mountains are being uprooted and thrown into the sea, do you see that the psalmist is saying, I don't have to fear even if stuff around me is cataclysmic in its proportions? I will not fear... For I have a refuge, though the mountains are carried into the sea, though its waters roar and be troubled, and the mountains shake with its swelling. Real quickly, what is a refuge? Well, you're sitting in one. It's beautiful this morning, but had we had church yesterday, we would be thanking God we were under a refuge. 
I don't know what it was like in Tampa, but in Lakeland, it was like raining tadpoles yesterday. A refuge is something that protects you from that that would otherwise be harmful. A refuge is that that gives you covering when what's going on around you would be detrimental. God is our refuge. That is, God in His providence, in His wisdom, in His sovereignty is so big that He knows your load limit. Every one of us has a load limit and God in His sovereignty knows what that is. Has anybody ever made the comment, I can't take it anymore? But guess what? You did. It even got worse sometimes and you made it through and you actually are still here this morning even though you thought you couldn't take another step, you couldn't breathe another breath, and you couldn't think another thought. That was your load limit from your perspective. His load limit from his perspective was different and God said, yeah, you can. I'm not going to destroy you in this, but I'm going to develop you through it. And you can rest assured that no matter what's happening around you, it'll never get so bad that I won't be your refuge when you can't take it anymore. It won't get to you any longer. Hallelujah. So I don't have to worry what's going on around me, whether it's personally or in my family or in my state or in my nation or in the world. I don't have to worry to the point to where that causes me to be frightened and agitated and manipulated because God is my refuge. Hallelujah. But notice, he says not only is God your refuge, but God is your strength. Therefore, I will not fear. You see, as I alluded to a moment ago, some of us have been through some tough stuff. And I would be venturing to say that a lot of people are going through some tough stuff this very moment. Seems like people are going through all kinds of things they never imagined would ever happen in their lives at a moment like this. And God's people are not exempt from that. People in this building are not exempt from that. And you say, well, Henry, that's a good thought that God is my refuge, but there's some stuff coming through the cracks right now that's getting to me that God's not keeping from me. What's up with that? Well, once again, God in His sovereignty knows what you can't handle, but He also knows what you can handle and how it will develop you as you walk through it, trusting Him every step of the way. So here's the bottom line. The bottom line is what he doesn't keep you from, he'll give you strength to see you through. Hallelujah. So you don't have to fear. You don't have to fear what's coming. You don't have to fear the future. You don't have to fear where what you're going through right now is going. God's going to be your refuge. And if so, he'll also be your strength. And when you get to the other side, you're going to come through stronger than you went in. And you're going to be more refined than when you went in. Because he's got your best interest and development in mind every moment of your lives. So... You ready to go? I will not fear, for I have a refuge. Selah. Hmm. Declaration number one. Declaration number two. These are things I'm asking you to say every day for the next seven days before you go to work, school, wherever you go. Verse four. There is a river 
whose stream shall make glad the city of God, the holy place of the tabernacle of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God shall help her just at the break of dawn. The nations raged. The kingdoms were moved. He uttered his voice and the earth melted. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Selah. Hmm. Declaration number two, and you have to stay with me because I'm going to give you some history and I'm going to take you somewhere, so stay with me. Ref number two, not only is God, I will not fear because God is my refuge, but declaration number two, I will not faint because God is my river. I will not fear for I have a refuge. I will not faint, cave in, buckle under, give out. I will not faint, for I have a river. Say that with me. I will not faint, for I have a river. Selah. Mm. Let me talk to you for a moment. A lot of commentators tell us that this particular psalm, as well as others, in the history of Israel, began to be used quite often by them at one of the three feasts that all male Jews were required to attend that lived within a 15-mile radius of Jerusalem. From your Bible study, you'll realize that those three feasts were the Feast of Passover, the Feast of Weeks or Pentecost, and then the third, both of those in the spring, and then the third one was in the fall of the year, which was called the Feast of Tabernacles, also called the Feast of Booths. Reed and I have spent a lot of time in Israel. We've taken many southeastern groups over when we had a study abroad program years ago for five weeks at a time, and there, was, there were times that Israel's really become like a second home to us at that time, and we've been there for the Feast of Booths because that's what we're going to talk about here for just a moment. The Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booths, became a feast to commemorate, to celebrate God's provision for Israel during their time of wilderness wanderings. You will remember that God delivered Israel out of Egyptian bondage and what could have been an 11-day journey into the Promised Land turned into a 40-year wilderness wandering. While they were in the wilderness, God did many, many things to help provide for them. I won't get into all of that today. But you tell me, if you're wandering with a group of people in the desert for 40 years, what becomes your number one um, uh, asset? What do you need if you're wandering in the wilderness for 40 years? What's number one? Water. Water. And you will see in the scripture God supernaturally providing water for them on more than one occasion. So it should not surprise us that in years to come after the nation was established and they began to celebrate in their nation these feasts. That when they celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles to commemorate God's provision in the wilderness. That one of the things that they celebrated in that feast celebration was God's provision of water. So water became a major part of the celebration of the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Tabernacles. I don't think they still do it today. We, we've been in Israel during the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booths, and 
Businesses will build little lean-tos outside where people can eat outside, commemorating the fact that the people were nomadic. They were wandering and they were living in tents and lean-tos in the wilderness. And I don't remember seeing this celebration, so at some point it stopped. But let me describe to you what at least until a number of years ago was something that they did at the Feast of Tabernacles. And this will make perfect sense to you once you understand this. The writer here says, there is a river, the streams whereof make glad the city of God. Let me talk to you about what they would do. They would uh, do some water stuff during the celebration of the Feast of Tabernacles. They would talk about in the synagogues, in the meeting places, they would talk about how that God brought water from the rock as Moses smote it. They would talk about other divine provisions and how God kept all of those people alive in a desert context. But one of the things that happened in Israel became almost a focal point at most of the Feast of Tabernacles celebration. And this is what I need to describe to you just a little bit. It happened during the reign of King Hezekiah. Hezekiah was king in Judah about... Uh, around about 700 BC and this is why this is important Hezekiah was reigning in Judah at a time to where a nation to the north called the Assyrians were running roughshod all over the known world they were conquering everybody and in 722 BC the Assyrians had already conquered Judah's northern neighbors called Israel their cousins the southern kingdom called Judah with capital city Jerusalem is where Hezekiah was ruling. And they realized that the Assyrians would soon be knocking on their door. Not knocking, but be there. So when Hezekiah became king, he began to survey the city to kind of see where some weak spots may be. This is just a matter of history. And one of the things that Hezekiah is famous for in his reign is Hezekiah discovered something that made the city of Jerusalem incredibly vulnerable. And that is their water supply for the city was located outside the protection of the city walls. The people had to go outside the city to gather water and bring it back in to their families and to meet their needs. It was bubbling up out of what was called the, the Gihon Spring. But that was outside the protective environs of the city wall. So Hezekiah meets with his elders and he said, Hey, look, guys, we got a problem. Sennacherib is coming. We know that. He's already conquered our cousins to the north. He's already conquered some cities north of us in Judah. And his goal is Jerusalem. But we got a problem. If Sennacherib comes, and he's coming, and he discovers that our water supply is on the outside of the city wall, they'll never have to fire an arrow. They'll never have to mount ramps on the walls of the city. All they have to do is guard our water supply, and in three days we surrender or we all die. So he did something that even today is considered a work of engineering genius. In today, today, modern day, I've been through the tunnel several times myself. Rita's been through it a couple of times as well. It's called Hezekiah's Tunnel. Imagine that. Hezekiah hired stonemasons. 
And they started at the Gihon Spring where the water was bubbling up. And they dug a big swimming pool. It's just about the size of this building here called uh, the Pool of Siloam, like a swimming pool. And one group started inside the city wall at the, at the swimming pool at the Pool of Siloam. The other group started outside the city wall at the Gihon Spring and they dug zigzagging lest they miss each other as they are digging underground and they dug an underground aqueduct 1700 feet through solid rock and they diverted the water from the Gihon Spring outside the wall and brought it inside the city of Jerusalem and it came up in the pool of Siloam. And in doing that, of course, then they, they covered over the Gihon Spring. And in doing that, Hezekiah has always been celebrated as one of their heroes because he, through that, kept them from being easily conquered by Sennacherib and they were never conquered by the Assyrians. A huge engineering feat. And like I tell you, you can still walk through that tunnel when you go to Jerusalem today. It's pretty amazing. The water's usually about this high depending on what time of year you're in. So they would celebrate not only the rock and Moses, but they would primarily celebrate because they're in the modern city. They would celebrate the genius of Hezekiah and how God gave him wisdom to dig this underground aqueduct. And you'll see it mentioned in Kings and also in Chronicles. Well, keep that in mind. So here's what would happen now on the Feast of Tabernacles. Remember the celebration of water. They would do a lot of things during the week, but it actually was an eight-day feast. And the last day of the feast was called the great day of the feast, on the eighth day. And on the eighth day, the high priest would come out of the temple with a golden pitcher. And with his entourage and the people lined up down the streets of Jerusalem... And there is a road, you can, they even have uncovered it now, and we've walked up it in its rough form. There is a road that led from the Pool of Siloam to the Temple Mount. And with the people lined up down the streets on both sides, and a spirit of festivity and celebration, the high priest would take this golden pitcher, and he would slowly walk with great pomp and circumstance down the street headed to the pool of Siloam and the people are screaming and shouting and celebrating. They did that on the last day, the great day of the feast. When he got to the pool of Siloam, he would take that pitcher, dip it into the pool of Siloam and they would walk back with this parade atmosphere and he'd take it back to the steps of the temple and as the people are celebrating, he would take that pitcher and slowly turn it over and as the water began to pour out of the pitcher and cascade down the steps, the people would thank God for his provision and for the way that he kept them through the wilderness and for the wisdom of Hezekiah and all those miracles of water that allowed the people to still be a people to this day. Everybody got that picture? Well, why did I tell you that? Here's the reason. On that last day of the Feast of Tabernacles, we know Jesus was there. In John chapter 7, the Bible says Jesus had, a, had attended the Feast of Tabernacles and he was somewhere in that crowd that I just described to you on the last day of the feast. 
And I don't know when it happened, but I can kind of imagine just about the time that the high priest turned over the pitcher and the water began to cascade down the steps. The Bible said at some point, Jesus cried with a loud voice and said, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. For he that believes on me, as the scripture has said, not from the outside in, but from the inside out, there will flow rivers of living water. And John tells us he spoke this of the spirit who had not yet been given because Jesus had not yet been glorified. That happened in that celebration at that Feast of Tabernacles where Jesus was. You know what Jesus was saying? Jesus was saying, you've heard what Hezekiah did. You know why we're still here. You know why the Assyrians didn't conquer our ancestors? Because he had the wisdom to bring the water from the outside in so that we didn't have to depend on something outside to keep us alive, but something that was coming up from the inside. And that's exactly what Jesus was alluding to when he said, it's not from the outside, but he that believes on me from the inside out, out of his innermost being, there will flow rivers of living water. Praise God. Oh, hallelujah. That's why I just want to say to you, I just about shouted around the building when Emily and, and, and company began to sing about Pentecostal power and the fire of Pentecost. We need to never, ever disregard or be ashamed of the fact that we depend on the Holy Spirit and we require the Holy Spirit and we long for the Holy Spirit because regardless of what's going on around us, it's the Holy Spirit bubbling up inside of us that becomes our strength and our security and our power and our stability in the midst of it all. Hallelujah be to God. That's why we don't have to faint, regardless of what's happening. Hey, on the outside, our strength is not on the outside. It bubbles up from the inside where, the, where Satan or any enemy can't stop it up because it comes from the inside out, not from the outside in. Hallelujah. I will not faint. Cave in. Be crushed by. Give up. I will not faint. Why? Because I have a river. And it's not a river that comes from the outside in. It's a river that flows from the inside out. Hallelujah. Practice number two with me. You ready? I will not faint. For I have a river. Selah. Mm, hallelujah. So what do we have? I will not faint fear for I have a what I will not faint for I have a number three let's look at the last one now number three he tells us in verse eight here we go hallelujah I can't see now I can hey hallelujah verse eight Come behold the works of the Lord who has made desolations in the earth. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariot in the fire. Now notice verse 10. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. 
The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Selah. Hmm. I will not fear, for I have a refuge. I will not faint, for I have a river. Here's the third declaration. I will not fret, worry, be bent out of shape with anxiety. I will not fret, for I have a revelation. Let me give you those three again. I will not fear, for I have a refuge. That's the first declaration. What to say when you talk to yourself? I will not faint, for I have a river. That's the second declaration. What to say when you talk to yourself? And the third one is, I will not fret, worry, be bent out of shape with anxiety. I will not fret, for I have a revelation. What's the revelation? That He's God. You say, wow, okay, that's pretty simple, is it? It may be simple to say, but I'm going to tell you in a self-sufficient society like we have created in America, it becomes very difficult to live. So let me, let me just illustrate that to you. How do you respond when things are bigger than you? How do you respond? I'm talking about you. I'm talking about me. How do we respond when circumstances in our lives are bigger than our ability to fix them? Anybody in here like Rita and I, we'll be the first to admit it. Anybody, Mr. and Ms. fix it in the house today? You just got to fix everybody. You got to have the answers to everybody's situation. If you can't fix them, then you get all bent out of shape. Anybody there? Well, I just got to tell you that if you are, and I'll be the very first one to raise my hand. I'm a fix-it kind of guy. But here's the thing. I realize that when it's bigger than I can fix and I get all worried and anxious about it, it's because I say he's God, but I think I am. Okay, Selah, okay. <laughs> Thank you. That's a good part for Selah. <laughs> Somebody else honest in the house. But isn't it true? Now, I could preach all morning about this, and my time's just about up. But that's the way to gauge who you really think God is. It's when things are outside of your ability to fix it. Whether you worry or whether you choose to trust. In the Lord with all of your heart, and lean not to your what? All your own understanding. Which means there's going to be some things often that happen in our lives to where we're just going to shake our head and say, I don't understand why this is happening. I don't understand what to do about that. I don't understand why God hasn't showed up. I don't understand why God allowed this. Is anybody checking this out with me here right now? Everybody clicking with this? Here's the deal. That's exactly what Proverbs was talking about when he said trust only happens when you don't understand. If you understand it all, then you're God and you can take care of it. But trust happens when you don't understand and all those understand questions that I just mentioned begin to happen. That's the time to be still and know that He's still God. That that means He's still in control. That He will be exalted. He will be exalted. He will be exalted in all of the earth. So here's the final thing I will say and it'll take me about two minutes to say it. Here's it. Notice what the psalmist says here. He says, be still and know that I am God. 
There's some things you'll never know until you get quiet enough to hear it. Be still and know that I am God. Is this another Salem moment? All right. This is it. Be still and know. You know why sometimes we talk so much about Him being God, but we act like we are? Is because we are so stretched to the max with no quiet margin in our life that we can't know He's God unless we get still enough to let it sink in. And most of us don't get still very often anymore. We're running from one thing to the next. And even... All right, fess up time. Even when we have our devotions, you have to be careful not to use your phone because you find yourself reading a verse and then checking your email. Thank you for your enthusiasm. You find yourself reading a verse and then all of a sudden somebody texts. Everybody got that? My son told me not long ago, he said, I can't use my phone anymore for my devotional time. It's easy, it's convenient. I love to use it, but I can't do it anymore because I can't quit from being distracted I've got to be still and I can't be still as long as I've got that sucker in my hand but there's some things you won't know unless you get still and let me just tell you what that term still means be still and know that term still means to get quiet and let your hands hang down in other words quit trying to fix it Relax your hands and get your hands off of it, and then God will show up. Sometimes God doesn't show up because we're still messing with it. We're still trying to fix it, and God's waiting on us to let our hands hang down and say, Lord, it belongs to you. I surrender. That's one of the reasons why one of the main symbols for praying is folded hands, because if your hands are folded, you can't do anything else with them. So let's go through those three things. Are you ready? Number one, I will not fear, for I have a... Number two, I will not faint, for I have a... Number three, I will not fret, for I have a... All right, praise God. What to say when you talk to yourself? Those are three good things to say when you talk to yourself this week. Bow your heads with me and let's pray for a moment. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, that it is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Thank you, Lord, that in the midst of times like ours, to where so much crazy stuff is going on around us, that our hearts don't have to be troubled. Thank you, Lord, that there's so much crazy stuff going on around us and so many things pulling at us that we can have an internal source that allows us to be strong. And it does not depend on the activity around us to do so. And thank you, Father, that in the midst of everything that you love us enough to allow situations to come into our lives that we cannot handle. So that we can be still and know that you are God. Hallelujah. Now, with your heads bowed this morning, I want to I just ask a question. And that is this. First of all, you know, if you, if you don't know Jesus, listen. What I've talked about today is children's bread. What the Bible talks is as children's bread, calls children's bread. If you don't know Jesus, I just got to tell you that your life is going to be characterized 
from this point on by fear, fainting, and fretting. Because human ingenuity is not going to take us much further on planet Earth than we've gone because things are going to ramp up from here. But you can know Jesus today. You can know Jesus today. It's a matter of just a simple prayer, but a sincere heart that says, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Cleanse me. I believe you died for me. I believe you rose again. Come into my life. Be Lord of every aspect of my life from this point forward. It's as easy as that, and with a sincere heart, your life will begin to change. But for those of us that know him, Relative to the last point that I shared about being still and knowing that I am God, I just want to see your hands here for a moment. I'm not going to ask you to come forward. I am going to pray for you. But how many of you right now are going through situations that you just don't understand? And when I ask some of those questions, I don't understand why this is happening. I don't understand where God is. I don't understand why God would let this happen. I don't understand where this is going. Questions like that. How many of you are there right now? Just slip your hand up right now. Yes, that's what I thought. You can put them back down. I especially want to pray for you that somehow in the, in the stillness that you carve out, in the margin you carve out, that God will help your hands to hang down, take your hands off of what you can't control, and say, Lord, this belongs to you, and I'm going to walk in peace. I'm not going to fret about it one more moment. Father, I pray that for my brothers, my sisters. At this moment, those hands all over the place that have gone up. Lord, I understand, and I'm just asking you this moment that you would be that peace that passes understanding. Oh, God, that you would touch them to be able to release and that their hands would be released to relax while you show yourself strong on their behalf. We thank you for it, and we ask it in the matchless, mighty, strong name of Jesus. And everybody said, Amen. If we're going to talk to ourselves, what more important thing can we say than the truth of God? See, those three statements that Dr. Hemby was encouraging us to memorize and to apply are just, you know, they're just not just cute phrases that he came up with. These aren't man-centered or man-created things. These are truth anchors of God. Now, these truths are important, just like an anchor works, just like a boat. Listen, I've been in a boat before, and, and we've had to anchor the boat, and just because you're anchored doesn't necessarily mean that you're not going to go with the current, with the tide. But what does the anchor do? The anchor keeps you from drifting away. You know, the, the wind and the wave might move you a little bit, but the anchor keeps you solid. And so I want to encourage you to apply those three statements. And if, hey, if there's other Bible verses that speak into your life, then memorize that. Do that because the more that we center our mind and the more that we anchor our soul, our thoughts, our minds on the Word of God, which is rooted in Christ, it is the revelation of Jesus, it is the inspiration, it is the work of the Holy Spirit as it connects us to the Father's heart. The more we anchor ourselves in God with this truth at the center, the more that truth will continue to transform our inner selves despite what is happening all around us.